chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. I've been preaching a series through First Peter at Calvary, and this is the passage that I most recently preached. We take verse 15 as our text, we read the entire chapter. We hear the inspired infallible word of our God. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let them eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if he be followers of that which is good? But, and if he suffer for righteousness' sake, Happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well doing than for evil doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. 
the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, our text is verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the dark, threatening clouds of persecution were gathering on the horizon at the time when Peter is writing his epistles. The faithful were being required to suffer intense persecution for their faith and for their confession. And that's evident from the very beginning of the book. Peter is writing to strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And the reason for that scattering was intense persecution coming upon the church. The Apostle John is often called the Apostle of Love due to the theme that characterizes his epistles. The Apostle Peter is given the designation the Apostle of Hope. The main point of the epistle is really on the foreground here in this verse. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of that hope that is in you. Peter addresses the epistle to the certain hope that is the believers of eternal glory. And that was evident again from the first part of the first chapter. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on to express the wonder of that, that God hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. And again and again makes reference to what great things God has done for us and how we are to live out of that wondrous salvation that is ours. That hope controls the life of the believer. So much so that others are able to see our good conversation. And that's been the emphasis throughout. The fact that we are called to show evidence of that hope and that godly conversation in every area of our life. In our interaction with the authorities, we submit to them. That submission shows itself in marriage, in the manner in which we conduct ourselves in marriage. And he applies to every realm of society and all of the aspects of the life of the believer, that hope, as that hope must be evident. Now God prepared Peter to write, by inspiration, these words, as God did all of the various authors of Scripture. Peter was weak. He was a sinful man. And you children know Peter. And sometimes you read the things that Peter said and the things that Peter did, and you kind of laugh. And you say, Peter, why did you say that? Peter, why did you do that? And we're struck sometimes with how often Peter was presumptuous, how often he fell into sin, and how God had to pick him up again and again. 
Even going so far as denying his Lord. Peter knew the wonder of his salvation. And having been humbled, and having been brought to see the horror of his own sin, and his own unworthiness, it was this hope that lived in his heart. And now God inspires him to write of this hope which is most glorious and marvelous. This hope that is centered on the wonder of election and the power by which Jehovah God preserves and keeps us unto the full enjoyment of that glorious inheritance. Peter was led clearly to see that this was God's work and that God in his mercy and his grace would preserve and would keep him. He was to live not for himself, but for God and his glory. Not to accumulate wealth and riches and fame and honor here below, but to shine forth for the glory and honor of God. Now that hope causes us to not have to fear. No need for terror. We have so much reason for fear in our day. Fear with regard to our own families and raising our children. Fear with regard to the church and her life in the midst of the world. Fear with regard to ourselves and how weak we are and how inclined we are to temptation and how quickly and easily we give in to the ways of sin and would bring destruction and sorrow upon our own families. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ so controls our lives that it gives us peace. It gives us patience. It works contentment. And it causes our attitude to be affected as we live in the midst of this world. So that that hope reflects itself in our speech, reflects itself in our conduct, and it's going to be evident in our lives. Now we all have seen those who stand out. Perhaps we see an Amish person or a Mennonite person and they stand out and we can tell they are who they are because of the clothing they're wearing, perhaps because of their language. The Apostle's point here is those who have that hope stand out. They don't fit in, but they stand out. And this is going to be evident in your life. And the fruit of that may be persecution. It may be opposition. But you will stand out. And it's important for us to note that. We, though we're sheltered in this area, living in a community which is predominantly Christian, we stand out. We stand out by our confession, by our walk, by our attitude, and above all, by that hope that lives within us. We stand out because of how we dress, because of how we talk, how we work, how we conduct ourselves. And standing out is going to give occasion then for us to either be attacked or questions to come. And the apostle says, when questions come, you need to be ready to give an answer concerning the reason why you are different. Why is it that you stand out? And so we look at this text under that theme, ready to give an answer, noting first of all the meaning, secondly the way that we are to respond with meekness and fear, And finally, the possibility, the wonder of that sanctification that God works in us. First of all, the meaning. The apostle says, a reason for the hope that is in you. 
Hope is a certain longing of future glory. And this longing is based on the promise of salvation that God gives us in Jesus Christ. A salvation that's glorious, that has its basis in election from all eternity, and in time, the wonder of the cross. And again, the apostle has laid out the marvelous character and nature of that salvation. The fact that we are strangers, we're pilgrims, who have been given this glorious salvation, who are being kept and preserved for a time with a view to the full realization of it in glory. God has promised the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom to us as his children. So that to us is given the future hope of heavenly life. And Jesus himself made that known again and again. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6, verse 51. Having the life of Christ, you live forever. That's the hope of the child of God. In John 11, verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Beloved, what a hope. The blessed assurance that though I die, yet I shall live. That's the marvelous character of the hope that the apostle here has been speaking of. This is a hope that transcends the earthly. It's a hope that's heavenly and glorious, worked in God by the wonder of regeneration. Now, when we talk about hope, we talk about especially three things. First of all, it's an expectation. It's that which we look forward to. We look forward to the full blessedness of that promise. And it's expectation that's rooted then in that life of regeneration that God has given us. We expect the full reality and wonder of that salvation by which we will be made new in all of its wonder. But secondly, not only is it that expectation, it's certain. Hope is sure. It's not merely a matter of hoping that tomorrow is going to be a nice day. It's a matter of a certain, sure assurance that's based on God's word and God's promises. There are times in our lives when that assurance is not what it could be. We struggle sometimes. But nevertheless, that hope is assurance. It's not just a shrug of the shoulders, maybe. God works the grace within us by which we know it as certain and sure based on God's word and his promises. And finally, it's a longing. That certain expectation causes within us a growing longing. Knowing the horror of sin, knowing the struggle against temptation, more and more we yearn for, we long for the full realization of that salvation. And the longer we're here on earth, the greater that longing intensifies. We become weary in the battle. And we long for that day when God will bring us into the fullness of that which now we know in part. It's a longing expressed especially during times of trial, times of sorrow, where God really causes us to see 
the wonder of that salvation and to long for it. The life of the believer is characterized by that hope. Every area of your life and my life, characterized by that earnest expectation, by that certain and sure assurance, and by that longing. And so as we live in the midst of this life, that which controls our lives is this glorious salvation and this hope that God has worked in our hearts by His Spirit. As mothers in the home, training our children, disciplining our children, dealing with the rigors of home life. This is the hope that lives in our hearts and in our souls, knowing the glorious salvation God has given us and that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is the hope that characterizes us as we work and as we play in the midst of this life, knowing that God has given to us something far more glorious, far more grand, And that for which we live is not the money, it's not the fame, not the honor. It's this glorious hope that controls our walk and our conduct. And the fruit of this, beloved, is that there is in our lives then a joy that cannot be contained. And that joy characterizes the lives that we live. Despite the disappointments, despite the sorrows, despite the reality of persecution, God has planted within us this treasure that motivates us to press on and to glorify Him in all things. We pray for grace in affliction. We pray for the grace to see it as for our profit. Our flesh doesn't see that at first, but we know and we believe it. And later, God gives us the grace. We look back and we see God worked that for good. God had a purpose. God was using it with a view to causing that longing to intensify within my heart and soul. As Reformed believers, we have so much for which to give thanks. And we have such a glorious hope. We confess that God is sovereign in every area of our lives. As we confess this morning, He's Lord. He is Lord of all, and He's my Lord. We confess that Jesus Christ is the one directing the whole course of history. And He's the one guiding and directing everything that takes place in our lives so that nothing happens by chance. Everything according to His sovereign plan and care. And there's a spiritual maturity. There's a spiritual seasoning that God works as we live our lives here below, and as God graciously and mercifully leads and directs us down life's pathway. Our living hope and our thankfulness to God so characterizes our lives that those around us are able to see evidence of that hand of God in our walk and in our conduct. That was the case of the saints that have gone before us. The Bible records some of those so that it was evident in the life of Joseph and able to be seen even by others. There's something about this man. There's something that stands out, something that's different. David was noticed even by Saul. Saul, his enemy, is pursuing him and Saul is struck by the fact David does not desire revenge. 
How is it that David is not seeking to get back at me? And David is struck even with the work of God's grace in the life of David as he witnesses it. Christians are filled with emotions, all kinds of emotions. But that which characterizes those emotions and that life is hope, a glorious hope. A hope that causes us to live in such a way that we reflect what really is important and what is not so important. And again, as we grow in years and as we go through trials, God impresses that upon us. Things that we thought were so important become less and less important. And as God takes an elderly saint to himself, God brings that individual to realize and to confess that there's nothing that's holding them back. Their desire is to be with their Lord. And that's far more glorious than any earthly relationship or possession. This is the marvelous work of God's grace in the heart and lives of God's children. So that it affects one's attitude toward possessions. It affects one's attitude toward pleasure. One's attitude toward the goods of this world. And so does this dominate the child of God that the child of God is willing to turn away from the things of the world and live as strangers and pilgrims in the midst of this world. That hope reflects itself in a deep dissatisfaction with earthly life because of sin and a firm conviction of that glory that awaits and the heavenly life to which God has called us. And that hope shows itself in a growing desire to be with Christ in all the fullness of that wonder. This dominates our lives, our conduct, our attitude. And that's what the apostle here is speaking of by the inspiration of the Spirit. He's been speaking in the whole epistle of this glorious salvation and its impact upon us and our life in the world. And now he says, others see that and they will see in you evidence. As a matter of fact, in verse 12 of chapter 2, he said, They may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. They will see those good works, which God is performing in you and through you. And such is the power of God's work. And so the apostle says, be ready. Be ready always to give an answer to every man. Because concerning this hope, you're going to be asked. They're going to see in you that there's a difference. They maybe can't put their finger on it, but they see in you a soberness, a spiritual maturity. They see in you a longing. They see you living according to your convictions, and they wonder. Maybe it's a high school student who has his or her first job, and the employers notice there's something about this person. Others notice And then you say, no, I can't work on Sunday. And they say, but you can start at noon. You can still go to church in the morning. And you say, but no, I go to church two times. You're like, what? You go to church twice? And so there's questions, there's concerns. There's something different that they identify. As we live in the midst of this world, as college students, we go to college. Roommates, others, professors, they see in you something different. That's different. There's a hope that lives in your heart and in your soul. You're not given over to the world and the things of the world and the pleasures of the world and as the world lives. 
You're different. And what is it that causes that difference? And we must not be embarrassed then to speak of it. Why is it that we go to church? Why is it that we go to societies? Why is it that we make time to help others and serve others? Why is it that our motives and our goals are different? Why is it that we dress differently? Why is it that we're looking for different relationships? We talk about the spiritual concerns and questions that are raised up. Now the hope that we have, beloved, is an everlasting hope so that we cannot help but speak of it. God has implanted it within our hearts. That salvation so glorious, so wondrous that we can't contain ourselves from speaking about God and His greatness and His glory. And the apostle here is not intending that we are to get into a whole spiritual diatribe about theology and about Calvinism and all of that. The point has to do very simply with your confession concerning God. What is it that makes you different? God! Who is this God whom you serve and worship? The ability to define and describe your love for God, your commitment to God and to His church, and your desire to live for His glory and for His honor. The testimony that you make that you're a pilgrim, you're a stranger here below. Your hope is not in the things of this world and accumulating fame and honor here below. You're but passing through because your citizenship is heavenly. It's glorious. This isn't your resting place. You anticipate a better city and heavenly one. And so that one may be on their sickbed. Another may be financially broke. Another may have had one heartache after another throughout the whole of their life. But you're not as one who has no hope. There's a hope that lives within you, a hope that God has worked in your heart that lifts you above the earthly and propels you into the spiritual. And others are going to notice it, and they're going to ask, are you ready to give them an answer? The word literally for answer here is apology. Are you ready to give them an apology? Now, that doesn't mean that we apologize for that hope. Too quickly, that's what we do, isn't it? We immediately apologize about the fact that we are committed on Sunday to going to church two times. We try to change the subject maybe because we don't want to make them feel bad. We don't want to try to expose their sin or unfaithfulness. We try to avoid talking about spiritual things or being called upon to give a judgment with regard to some aspect of religion. Someone asks our opinion and we're reluctant to give them an answer because we're afraid what they'll think about us or how that's going to affect the relationship we have. That's not the idea here. The apology comes from the court setting, where the Christians would be seated before the judge, and the judge would call upon them to give support, to give a reason, to present their case. And the idea here is that we present our case with regard to why it is that we are different. And the explanation is God. The wonder of salvation that's in Jesus Christ and the faithfulness and the goodness of my God toward me so that we're ready to talk about God, His goodness, His mercy that fails never. Ready at all times to give a defense of that hope. 
an explanation that's logical, that's reasonable, that's simple, that's intelligent, but most importantly, heartfelt. This is who I am. This is what characterizes my life. Again, not having to get into doctrinal detail, but I know what I believe, and I can provide an explanation of the wonder and the greatness of my God, how He is to be worshipped, how I am to live before His face in thankfulness and in praise, and what I owe to Him. Because He rescued me from death, and He gave me to know that though I die, I shall live. I'm a sinner, but my sins have been forgiven all through the blood of the cross. At times, we're ready to give this apology. Sometimes we're not. The apostle emphasizes here, be ready always to give an answer. There are times when we're discouraged. Times maybe we're distressed. And we look to fellow saints to strengthen us and to build us up and to encourage us in our Christian walk. Sometimes we're focused too much on ourselves, our own problems. We're engaged in our own pity party. And we're not living out of that hope as we ought. God directs us then to be in His Word. As those who are called to be ready, we need to be in the Word, constantly saturating ourselves with Scripture, grounded in the Word of God, understanding the promises, knowing the glorious character of that salvation. And the more we understand the Scriptures, two things will be evident. My sinfulness and the greatness of God. As we read the scriptures, and as we delve into the scriptures, more and more we realize, I am a sinner. I'm not worthy of this hope. And more we're directed to see the greatness and the majesty and the glory of our God, and His goodness to us, so undeserving. Peter knew that. Peter had been there. He knew that he was not worthy of that hope. He was not worthy to live in the consciousness of it. And yet, he was assured by Jesus himself, you're forgiven. And he was restored. And he was given strength to go forward. Often we're scared that we're going to say the wrong thing. We're scared that we're going to mess up or fearful and embarrassed that we're going to say too much. Enthusiasm for the word must be evident in our witness. And daily devotions become a strength in that regard. When in the morning we read a verse, that verse sticks with us throughout the course of the day. And something comes up, and perhaps someone says something, and God calls to memory that verse that we read. And we're able to use it for the encouragement of someone else, or we're able to use it in order to speak to them concerning that hope. God works that grace in connection with His Word. There are times when our desire is to learn more about a certain topic or subject. And so we dig in. And if it's a doctrinal matter, we go to a book such as The Doctrine According to Godliness, an excellent resource with small chapters about all the various different doctrines that we can understand and readily grasp. Perhaps it's a subject And we go to the pamphlets that are so readily available and we dig into them and we read them and we study them so that we can be better equipped to give that answer to that one who has a question for us. When we experience the marvelous character of God's forgiving grace, 
There's a spontaneous joy that erupts in our hearts. A testimony to God's faithfulness. And that hope lives in our hearts. Beloved, we realize this personal witness is the main way in which God adds to his church. Repeatedly, it's found out that lectures and mailings and ads and all kinds of opportunities that we have as an evangelism committee may be fruitful in some ways and helpful, but cannot begin to compare to the personal witness of the hope-filled believer as he or she lives her life in the midst of the community. As they interact with others and in turn bring others into the fellowship of the church and under the preaching of the gospel, that hope-filled believer is who the apostle here is describing. And he says, be ready now to speak of that hope, even if it means suffering. And that's the context here. There's going to be suffering, suffering for righteousness' sake. But don't be fearful. Now, how are we to do it? With meekness and with fear. Meekness is the opposite of pride. Our response must not be of haughty pride. And Peter presupposes that so easily that is our response. And is that not correct? Someone asks us a question. Our initial response is, well, I'm a child of God. Obviously, you must not be then if that's not how you live or walk. Or to think that I'm better than that person because I have a better handle on the situation because I can deal with it better, whereas they can't deal with the circumstance, obviously, because they're not as well equipped. So easily we come across as though we're haughty, we're proud, we're better than they, as though we've done something to make ourselves different. Never. May that be our response. We realize we are what we are and who we are only by the grace of God. And that salvation is nothing for which we can take any credit of ourselves. It's only by the grace of God we have this hope. And so we don't act as though we're the only ones going to heaven. We don't leave the impression that others might think that we're holier than they. We know ourselves and we know who we are. And again, Peter is speaking here from personal experience. He knew his weakness, his sinfulness. We respond with meekness, with humility, humbly acknowledging that this hope is God-given. This hope is God-worked. This is a marvelous wonder of God's grace that's through the cross alone and that it's only because of the wonder of God's goodness and Christ's sacrifice that I'm able to know and desire to walk and to live a godly life. By nature, I'm no better than anyone else. We willingly acknowledge our sin, acknowledge our shortcomings, confess them. More importantly, meekness is the virtue that enables us to suffer for the sake of that hope. We will not get revenge. We don't seek anger. But rather, in meekness we submit even in the midst of persecution, willing to speak the truth in love and to suffer where that's necessary. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, the apostle says. But then secondly, fear. That fear is not the fear of men. Paul rules that out in verse 14. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. 
We're bold. We're to be a bold witness of the truth. That hope lives within our hearts. But it's godly fear, and that's been a theme throughout the epistle as well. The fear of God, reverence, awe. This great God has done this for me. This is what this great God means to me. And that fear of God, that reverence, that awe is what motivates, it's what incites us. This godly fear drives away the fear of men. It prevents us from giving in to their threats. This fear of God is a reverence and awe before him as our Savior. And as we acknowledge, why are we here on earth? We're here to show forth his praise. We're here to shine as lights, to be as salt in the midst of this world, to reflect his love. We've been forgiven. Our calling is to forgive as we've been forgiven, ready to love unconditionally as we've been loved unconditionally, willing to rebuke as we come into contact with those who are walking in sin. Our fear for God and His Word motivates us concerning that hope. And that godly fear is expressed by desire to walk before Him in truth and to give Him glory. We make a true profession of our faith without shame. And we seek to live unto Him even though that means opposition and persecution. And that points out the fact that our witness is active. It's not passive. We don't stand around waiting for someone to come with a question. We manifest that hope that is within us. And our life is bold. Our life is open due to that godly fear that characterizes our walk and conduct. And others will see that conversation, that good conversation. Now, an important note regarding Christian witnessing is noted here. There are times when it's impressed upon us that the most effective thing to do is to go on a mission trip or hand out tracts going door to door. And while there may be places for those kind of things, the apostle is emphasizing here, your witness is not something that just happens once a month, once every two years. It's happening every moment of every day. Your whole life is lived as that witness. And therefore, don't seek to categorize your life as though now you're going to take this little section of your life and you're going to go be a witness in a certain way when the rest of your life very easily may contradict it and bring shame to that witness. The point of the text is your life is your witness. And others are going to see how you're living and they're going to desire to know the reason of it. We point to God's grace. We point to God's hand in our lives. We point to the wonder of God's goodness. And regardless of whether we're mocked, we're ridiculed, or that witness is appreciated, we continue in thankful hope, clinging to God and His faithfulness and His word. We do so... The text says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This can also be read, sanctify the Lord Christ in your heart. Now immediately the question arises, how are we to make God holy in our hearts? Because we know sanctification means holy. God is a holy God. He's the holy one. He calls himself by that name. This admonition seems to require of us something that's impossible. We know salvation is all of God. We know sanctification is all God's work. 
At the same time, the Bible includes this in its detailed description of our calling in the midst of this world. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now we cannot sanctify God himself in our hearts. God himself is holy. He already is present within us. But we can sanctify our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ becomes more and more manifest in our lives as the Holy One. God not only dwells with us as the Holy One, He dwells in us by the power of His Spirit. And God's children are united to Christ by a true and living faith so that Christ is dwelling in us and we in Him. Our bodies, temples of the Holy Spirit. God sanctifies us by the Spirit of Jesus Christ and He dwells in us to make us His children. Now what is holiness? Holiness is always two things. Saying no to sin, separated from sin, consecrated to what's right. As God's children, indwelt by the Spirit, our desire is to turn away from sin and to turn unto God. That's evident by the power of God's grace. And that's the fruit of the wonder of salvation within us. We confess ourselves to be God's children, sanctified by Christ, with Christ dwelling in us. And we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts by then fleeing sin, saying no to sin, saying yes to the things that are good and right, and maintaining that antithetical walk. We don't sanctify the Lord God in our hearts by saying, I'm going to give myself in to the corruption and the pollution of the world. And so, I'm a child of God. It doesn't matter what my eyes set upon. So I'm going to feed on the pollution and the filth and the pornography and all the corruption of this world. That's not the spirit of Christ living and dwelling in the child of God. The child of God is sensitive The child of God says, I'm going to turn away from that filth. I'm going to turn away from that pollution. It's a battle. But by God's grace, I'm going to flee in order to walk with Him. We fight that old man. And we turn by God's grace. And when others see that holy life, they see God within us. Not in the sense that we become divine, but in that that holiness is God's work in us restoring us in the image of His Son. That's not my work. I wouldn't be inclined to do that. That's evidence of the power of God within me. The idea, beloved, is this. We've heard the declaration of God with regard to justification. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What a marvelous, wondrous declaration. Jehovah God declaring us to be those who are righteous in Jesus Christ. And out of that flows what Peter calls good conversation. Flows the love for God, the delight, the desire to live unto Him. Those whom God justifies, He sanctifies. And flowing out of that is the brave, beautiful piety that shines forth in the life of the child of God. Perfectly? No. A battle all the way until that time 
when God takes us to be with Him in glory. But it's that which shines forth in such a way that it serves as a justification to those around, as evidence to those around us of the work of God's grace in our hearts. That's what the apostle again and again is emphasizing here. The wicked are watching. The wicked are looking at you. They're seeing you. The Gentiles are looking at you. What do they see? They see in you the wonder of the power of God's grace as you live unto him, as those who are sanctified, those who keep yourselves from sin and give the world no cause for slandering the cause of Jesus Christ. So sensitive that we forego certain things so as not to lead someone astray by our witness. Christ dwelling within that sanctuary which is his own and preserving and keeping us by the power of his grace. This is the necessary activity of the regenerated soul in response to the Spirit at work in his life. And that work of the Spirit moves the child of God to be active. In no way does that deny the sovereignty of God with regard to salvation. In no way does that deny that sanctification is all God's work. But that sanctification is evident as the child of God now lives unto the Lord and seeks from the heart to show every aspect of his or her life in accordance with the will of God. All of our conduct reflecting the moral purity and holiness of Christ who dwells within us. And that calling to be holy even as God is holy. The child of God reflects the power of the cross. This is the grace by which God renews, sanctifies, and preserves. And the power of this work of God often resulted in persecution. And that's the reality that the apostle addresses. God's children were persecuted. Persecuted because of their faith. But also throughout history, what do we witness in the context of that persecution? Often, the wonder of God's grace bringing the persecutors to the feet of Jesus. The persecutors seeing in those whom they were persecuting something that caused them to stand in awe. So that the centurion, as he's seated at the cross, and as he witnesses all that's going on, is finally brought to confess, this man was an innocent man. And God brings him to the wonder of his own salvation. God pleased to make use of the godly conversation of his children as a powerful witness of the wonder of the grace that's in Jesus Christ. Peter knew how important this sanctified walk was. He had failed again and again. And when one does not maintain a disciplined, sanctified life, what happens? There's not only not a witness, but rather the witness is negative. And now you give occasion for the enemy to blaspheme because of our unfaithfulness. Who are they to say that they have the truth when that's the way they talk? on the basketball court. They don't have any sportsmanship. We hear how those students are swearing and cursing and taking God's name in vain. 
Perhaps they say, who are those prots to criticize us for our bad theology when their conduct and their action is that which would even be shamed by a non-Christian? They talk about getting drunk. They talk about the R-rated movies they're going to go to and all the covetous desires they have. Beloved, that's not the discipline, spiritual life that gives occasion for God to be glorified. And we're ashamed. Peter was ashamed. Peter was brought to his knees in sorrow, deep sorrow. But what did Peter learn from that? And what do we learn from our sins and our failures? We repent. We turn from them. And we learn this glorious truth. My hope cannot be lost. Though I sin, though I deny my Christ, my God is faithful. He preserves me. He keeps me. He holds me. He forgives me. So that this is not my work. This is His work within me. And that stirs us, beloved, even to a greater measure to live out of thankfulness for that glorious hope that lives in our hearts, that we might be ready ever to give an answer. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the glorious salvation Thou hast given, for the wondrous reminder again and again of Thy goodness, Thy mercy that fails never, and cause that we might ever live in the joy and the wonder of that work of grace on our behalf knowing and believing that we have a glorious inheritance that is reserved and kept for us and that Thou art the one keeping us also for that glorious salvation. Lord, may our lives reflect that wondrous hope and cause that we might show forth Thy praise. Amen.